So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. <clears throat> so the small town where I grew up spent the first 16, 17 years of my life, Columbia, Tennessee, was uh, at the time partly commercial, partly agricultural, mo mostly agricultural. And um, the primary cash crops of the area were tobacco and corn. And consequently, it was common for most adults around me to smoke. Um, because it was seen or uh, thought to be unseemly for a woman to smoke, they did that in private. That's the way they maintained that illusion. When I found out that the pastor of our Baptist church smoked, that just further sanctioned my newly acquired habit. Yes, at that time, I smoked. Um, years later, long after I had given up the habit of smoking, I was back there visiting in the hospital because my mother was in the hospital. Um, you know, I mentioned last week being in clinical training. When I was in clinical training in Houston, Texas, doctors smoked in the hospital. My first training analyst smoked in his office while supervising my work. Smoked little cigars. Um, and, of course, I thought that was the professional way to be. You were going to be big shot. At the time when I was visiting my mother in the hospital, in Murray County, Tennessee, in the county hospital. I saw patients wheeling their stands that carried their bags of the trip medicine in their bodies because you couldn't smoke in the hospital anymore. So they would wheel their, their bottles outside where they could continue to smoke. I have seen patients smoke through trach tubes that were placed in their body. That's, that's how powerful and addictive a drug nicotine is. Now, if you are a person who still smokes, you have my concern and my sympathy because I know the power of the drug. And I also know, as does anyone else who reads the evidence, that smoking is bad for the human body. Whenever I hear now that someone has developed lung cancer, my first reflexive question is, did they smoke? And because smoking became such a primary source of death among Americans, an educational campaign spearheaded by the American Cancer Society and the American Medical Association gradually began to reduce the number of people addicted to cigarettes. Smoking was banned in airplanes and then it was banned in restaurants. Now, the first step in both of these endeavors was to section off the places where you could smoke. You could only smoke in the back of the airplane, and then you could only smoke in smoking sections of the, of the restaurant. Those are gone now, as well they should, should be. They were 
perhaps necessary steps, but they were stupid. I drive a car that has dual climate control, that is to say there's a climate control for the passenger and a climate control for the driver. That's stupid. <laughs> That's like going to Starbucks and saying, put cream in half my coffee, yeah. right? You smoke in a room, it fills up the whole room. You smoke in a plane, it fills up the whole plane. The educational effort to teach people the dangers of smoking has largely been successful in this country. I am aware that vaping, smokeless tobacco, and smoking uh, are on the rise among young people, but I got to thinking about this smoking business after watching a movie that we had rented to stream. I had read about this movie in an article published, oddly enough, in a journal for spiritual direction that I take. The movie was Laura. It was made in 1944, and the movie was recommended by the person who wrote this journal article because the movie is an example in the movie of a person whose life is transformed by love. The detective who's trying to solve a movie is transformed because he falls in love with Laura. The movie features Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, and a very young Vincent Price. And the one thing all these people have in common is that they're all dead. That was supposed to be funny, but anyway. <laughs> the movie was made in 1944. That's 79 years ago. That's a long time ago. And seriously, it is a fascinating psychological study. And given the fact that it was made in 1944, it's a good film. The other thing that all the characters in this movie have in common is that they smoked. And that, I am so unused to that, that that was a distraction for me while watching the film. They were lighting up cigarettes all the time. And then I got to thinking about it. That's an interesting psychological study in and of itself. The shift of thinking that smoking is a socially accepted thing to an awareness that not only is it not socially accepted, but also the fact that our entire society, more or less, came together to embrace the fact that not only is smoking not healthy for an individual, it's not healthy for the society. You see where I'm headed with this. You know, there's some of us in this room are, who are in what I refer to as the unicorn generation. We're part of the last generation can, that can remember what it was like before we got these digital devices that we hold in our hand. Um, I prefer to read um, books on my e-reader um, that was unheard of when I was growing up in my, my home. But we are now electronically connected and controlled. I was in the ninth grade before my family got a television set. And we got one early because my father sold them. And uh, we got two stations. They were broadcast from Nashville, Tennessee. They came on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and went off at 10 after a 15-minute news segment with a guy named John Cameron Swayze. Uh, 
and he was sponsored by Timex cigarettes, by Timex watches, or by Camel cigarettes. One of the two. That's a long way from where we are now with TV. My granddaughters have never lived in a world that was not increasingly digitally dominated. I, I can remember when the first video games came out. We, they weren't things that we had at home, um, not at first. We used to go to a place called Shakey's Pizza Parlor. And for a quarter, you could put a quarter in a machine and you could play a video game called Pong, which was like digital table tennis. <laughs> then these games made it into our homes. They were first very simple video devices. Children played Pong, then they played Tetris, then they played Super Mario Brothers. I got my first home computer sometime in the early 80s, and now we could play computer games at home. The first and still most popular game on a computer is solitaire. And people play it all the time on their phones or other devices. But time passes, and the games get more complicated, as do the machines. The games became more violent. The games became what are referred to as hunt-and-kill games. They were violent, and they began to involve communities of people. They're called gamers, and it's a huge movement. Some of these violent games where hunting and killing is the object have been used by our own defense department to desensitize men about killing other men. Now, I want you to think about that. Video games designed for the pleasure of children have been used by our Defense Department to, de to desensitize men from killing other men. Now we've kind of acclimated to that, like that frog in that warming pot of water. Psychologists, neurologists, child development experts, others raise warning flags about these games. They said they were planting seeds of violence, giving kids permission to act out. Now we know that the violence has been there all along. It's the permission giving that's of concern. I have a colleague now moved to uh, the New England area who's a neuroscientist, and he began to collect hard data about how the involvement with these games was actually rewiring the neurological pathways in people's brains because they're connected to this digital device. For the most part, these warnings were ignored. And then um, comes along Mark Zuckerberg. If you have not seen the documentary, Social Dilemma, stream it today. Get it from wherever you can and watch it. It's very educational and it's something that will help you understand what's going on in the culture out there. 
I'm contending that Facebook and social media have become the smoking of our time. I'm aware the analogy of smoking with social media is not a perfect one. There is some good that comes out of social media, can be accomplished by social media, but the damage it has caused and is causing to the fabric of our society is horrendous. Lies, misinformation, disinformation, the like, not only abound, but spread like the proverbial wildfire because of social media. Now, I will not live to see this happen. But it is my belief and hope that at some point in the future, our society is going to come together for the health of the society and for the person in the same way we came together about the dangers and damages of smoking to save what social media is doing to the fabric of our society and say enough is enough. Now, I'm, I'm calling the time today um, hospice in the maternity ward. It's a metaphor that I'm using. Um, I want to hold it up uh, for us to look look at and, and hopefully inhabit as a way of thinking about and maybe participating in, in change. Now, I don't know what, what experience you've had with the hospice movement. Uh, the word hospice comes from a Latin word, H-O-S-P-I-S, and it's a Latin word that means both guest and host. It can mean both. And the hospice movement started sometime in the 60s in England and then moved to the United States. And um, hospice provides special care for people who are dying. And it links uh, pain and symptom control, uh, which now, thanks to the advances in medicine, we, doctors can manage, to compassionate care. And uh, it's a wonderful movement. So far, first of all, I am so indebted for the training I've had in hospice care and what I've learned from people in hospice, what they've taught me about the things that people need to hear uh, in the process of dying. Um, I love you. Thank you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Those four things. And, and, and uh, I've had tons of experience over the years with people in the process of, of death and dying. And I can tell you, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's safe. And, and if you've had an experience with hospice, you know this. It's a wonderful, wonderful movement, end-of-life issues. It's a wonderful care. It, it, it doesn't take grief and loss away. But it does wrap death and dying up with a love and compassion and attentiveness that mean everything to the people who are involved with it. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of. So I see this space right here as a hospice room. We're all dying, right? As Jim Finley, who am I going to quote later today, says we're all like melting candles in a room. I love that metaphor. But it's more than that. I mean, we've been talking about dying to ideas of God, beliefs about God, understandings of God. 
dying to ideas, beliefs, understandings about ourselves. This is a hospice room where those deaths can occur. Wrapped up in love and compassion and understanding and say, thank you. You have served your time with me well. I'll let you go. I also see this room as a maternity ward because new ideas can get born, new people can be, get born, new understandings can be born. Understandings of grace and self want to be born in this room and come alive. Death and new birth, these are events that occur all along the spiritual path. And I want us to be able to meet all of this with peace and acceptance celebration, compassion, and enlightenment. Now, as you are aware, ordinary life is made possible by, it's supported by, endorsed by a religious institution. That religious institution is St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Now, you're likely also aware that the United Methodist Church is not as united as it was a few years ago. Almost 3,000 churches have left the United Methodist Church over the last few years. And this division pretty well follows the division that's occurring in the culture out there. As an expression of, or at least in the context of organized religion, I think ordinary life needs to be one that speaks openly, honestly, lovingly, and bravely about the plight we are in and offer comfort to those who have been or are being hurt by organized religion. We're leave, living in this really paradoxical time where there are all sorts of signs of spiritual awakening, but also a decline in religion. Religion has become more divisive than uniting. I run into folks all the time who tell me that they love Jesus and they love the teachings of Jesus and they want to follow their lives after the teachings of Jesus, but they would not call themselves Christian if you paid them because of how the word Christian has been sullied by evangelical right-wing Christians who get the news out there. I understand that. Now, if it is not already apparent to you, the event that pushed me in the direction of writing this talk was the mass shooting that took place in Allen, Texas. Now, I promise you, I won't base a talk on or in response to every mass shooting that occurs in this country. If I did, that's all we would talk about. However, not to do so now seems to me to be participating in the illness from which our society suffers. Either to ignore what's going on or to resign ourselves to its inevitability. Those who chose to combat the source of smoking decided to do something about it. Yes, as hard as it is for us to hear, you and I live in a society that suffers from a severe mental illness. 
And I want to scream at the TV every time I hear somebody say that the source of all the shooting is one or two mentally deranged people. It's the culture that colludes in making this possible. Our very denial of this is part of the illness that our culture suffers. It's like our society has a death wish and a leadership that has, for whatever reason, an inability to face up to what's going on. And worse, to face up to the tra trajectory we're on. You and I live in this environment. It is toxic. And there need to be times and places where we can take a deep inhalation of cleaner, fresher, purer air. And I would like these times to contribute to that. Further, I would like for these times in here to contribute, among other things, to creating a safe place for personal and corporate reflection so that we can become brave in contributing to the cessation of violence in our culture just as people became active in participating in creating a context for the cessation of smoking. Now, <clears throat> for those of you who say gun violence is not our only issue, I agree. Um, we have a lot of things that are contributing to our current death sprawl, racial violence, it's increasing, racial injustice, it's increasing, climate change out of control. All the experts are saying what the experts said at the beginning of the smoking crisis, what the experts said at the beginning of the video game crisis. They're saying that now. An evolving understanding of and involvement with sacred mystery in one hand, an evolving understanding of and involvement with self in the other hand, and walking a path illuminated by the, path, by the light of Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. Now, I've been thinking a lot lately because of Easter um, about a scene in the Gospel of John. It's a parable, a metaphor. And one version of the passage I have in mind, the one some of you might be most familiar with, is one where Jesus says to his disciple in, in the 14th chapter of John, I'm going to go away, but you can't come with me. Um, you will die in your sin or something like that before you can make it. This is the way Eugene Patterson puts it. Then <clears throat> he went over the same ground again. That should be underlined. He went over the same ground again. So I can repeat myself in here. Jesus gives me the permission. I am leaving you and you're going to look for me, but you are missing God in this and are headed for a dead end. There is no way you can come with me. You're missing God in this. And you are headed for a dead end. Now, the church of my youth taught me that this passage was about Jesus going off to heaven. And then later, if we were lucky, believe the right things, belong to the right group, Jesus might come back and get us. 
like a thief in the night. Scary stuff. What Jesus is saying in this passage is another version of something that he taught over and over again. He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to give some stuff up. You're going to have to die to some things. And the reason you're having a hard time of this is because you've not developed the same relationship with the mystery as I've been trying to teach you. And because of that, you have hit a dead end. We walk the path into greater awareness and awakening with an evolving understanding and relationship with sacred mystery in one hand, an evolving understanding and relationship with self in the other, and that path being enlightened by the teachings of Jesus. Sacred mystery in one hand, self in the other, and that path being enlightened by Jesus. Now, you won't find in any of these three spheres any room for violence or, for that matter, for racism or for the degradation of the planet or for economic exploitation or any of the other ills that are affecting us. One of the most damning things social media has done to us is create the illusion of a community when in fact it has separated us. We have become granulated, separated, becoming and being community takes time. And we don't have any. Isn't that what people say when a spiritual director says you need to have a daily spiritual practice? Seriously. The response is, I don't have time for that. My schedule is already booked. I'm not being critical. I'm just noticing. I'm calling attention to. I have said this numerous times, and I will keep saying it because we have yet culturally to come to grips with it. We are in the grips of a shadow called redemptive violence. And coming to terms with our shadows and getting them in front of us into the light of day is hard work. And it's costly. It means things have to change. As you are aware, to continue to do the same thing and expect different outcomes is one of the classic definitions of insanity. Now, I said last week when Holly and I were co-teaching and my remarks were not in the notes, so that's why you didn't see them in the summary, that um, our solution to the out-of-control gun violence problem. It's the leading cause of death among young people here. The leading cause of death in our country of young people is guns. I said to the director of the day school here this week when we were wandering around the campus, do you do active shooter drills here in this school? Little kids, yes. That's so sad and so necessary. 
Our response to this ought not be resignation, which seems to be the path we're following. Well, what can you do? Another shooting. It's not gun regulation laws. However, look at the ones in Australia. They make a lot of sense to me. It's not adapting to, not getting used to. The answer is our becoming a nonviolent society. Though it was up to individuals to stop smoking, it was a societal education and regulation program that paved the way. As a society, we came to realize what cancer treatment and cancer-related deaths, all due to smoking, were costing us. Enough was enough, and it worked. My belief is that when each of us strives to become better, everything around us becomes better, too. Now, I know you are already very good people. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. But we're living in a time and a culture where being good is not enough. We must be, at least strive to be, <clears throat> the transformed people who can contribute to the transforming of the world. Now, this is not religion or spirituality as usual. As some of you have noted, this is not your grandmother's Sunday school class. And though right beliefs are important, my desire is not simply that we hold right beliefs, but rather that we enter the fire and flow of the sacred, that we not merely know about, but that we intimately, personally experience. That what matters is not what we say about God or believe about God, but how we do God. How we embody the cosmic love that breathes in our breath and that animates our own consciousness and that fires the stars. Now, if you think this is naive, so be it. But you know, I never know where the message of ordinary life is going to land. It's not my message. It's not the message of Bill Curley. It's a message about love and honesty and, and freedom. That's the message. I mentioned a minute ago the division in the United Methodist Church, and regardless of what anyone says, the bottom line of this division has to do with who you love. And it's been about people who go through the painful death of one kind of identity in the world, hospices, if you will, so that something new can be born, maternity ward. Now, I want to offer for us a model about how to conduct ourselves into witnessing to nonviolence, as well as other matters in the culture that need to be addressed. I think we can learn from our siblings in the LBGTQIA plus community because courageously and at times great sacrifice, they have come out to declare their identity and their desire to be accepted. Or, as Dawson said, 
um, Dawson Taylor here said, I don't want to be accepted. I want to be celebrated. And they've done that. And they've shown us a model of how we can be in the culture as nonviolent people, celebrating nonviolence, being accepted as nonviolent people. Our oldest granddaughter graduates from the university today. I would say that we, she has a, a grade point score of 100%, but that would be bragging, but I would say it anyway. <laughs> we have two precious granddaughters. Some of you have children and grandchildren. My God, I want them to live in a world where they can be safe. I don't want them to have to fear being shot every time they go out somewhere. All right now, that's not the case. This is a hopeful message today, folks. I hope you see that. We can stop we, we can stop smoking. We can stop this. When I began being introduced to various models of personality growth and development, there have been scads of them that have come over the years. Um, one of our professors pointed out how it is possible for a person to stop psychological, emotional, intellectual growth at adolescence and go all the way to death without additional change. And um, later I would learn from a social scientist who studies such development that he says that his group estimates that 80% of adults in the American society are arrested at late stage adolescent development. 80%. And he said, if you want proof of that, just watch what's on primetime commercial television or watch your politicians. I was privileged to meet uh, Jim Fowler, son of a Methodist minister, by the way. Um, years and years and years ago, and then work with him at Harvard as he developed his developmental stages of faith. I'm going to talk about that next Sunday. Um, <clears throat> the title of the talk is, um, You Ought to Be on Stage. There's one leaving in a few minutes. <laughs> you ought to move for a next stage of development. You ought to go for that. It is part of the human condition, though, to think that we're always further along than we really are. Yeah? In my experience, the really evolved souls always see themselves as beginners. I'm just getting the hang of this. So I have used and will continue to repeat that we're seeking to walk a path of an awareness into an evolving understanding of and with our true self, and that's what one of the things that we're doing. And, and this involvement with the true self expresses itself, I think, in at least four ways. I'm not going to amplify all these today, but we will come back to them. One of them is a constantly increasing awareness. There's more and more and more aware, 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 awake and awake and awake. A growing and inclusive identity of who we are a larger um, framework of meaning making. This is uh, how we understand, make sense of ourselves, others, sacred mystery of the world. We enlarge, always getting larger and larger. And a reorganization of our personality that results in a changed way of being in the world. And you can't stop along the way and say, oh, I've done enough of this. 
we get the opportunity of working on this till we drop the body. Now, right now, we live in a culture of tribal consciousness, not transformational consciousness. And we get affected by that when we go out and turn on the TV, turn on Facebook, do whatever you do. But our best prophets, like Jesus, are saying that without a transformed, transforming relationship with the sacred, we may be at a dead end. Now, you can hear that as prophetic or you can hear that as hopeful. We're in a hospice room. I recently finished reading Jim Finley's recently released memoir, The Healing Path. I am not necessarily recommending this book. It's real brief to read. But if you don't have the stomach to read the words of a genuine Christian mystic, stay away from it because it's full of that kind of language. But I love Jim Finley, and I love the things that he's taught me over the years and experiences that I've had with him. So reading this book was like sitting across from him and hearing him talk. And I'd heard uh, Jim talk about this experience he had in his psychological training, but I never read it. Uh, but it's in the book, and I'm going to give you an abbreviated version of what's in the book about an experience he had when he was doing his internship in clinical psychology in California. He was assigned to work in a VA hospital, and one of his rotations was to be on the ward with uh, recovering alcoholics, locked up alcoholics. And the men in the unit uh, where he um, worked had devised an initiation rite for those seeking to be admitted to the unit. And because the initiation rite had been handed down from one group to another, and Jim was brand new to this. He had no idea what to expect the first time he saw it. And he says that when he went into the room, big room, all the men um, were sitting in chairs around the four walls of the room. Except there were two chairs in the middle of the room, about four feet apart, and those chairs faced each other. And all the men around the room sat in silence, heads down, not looking. So when the man seeking to be admitted was led into the room, he sat in one of those chairs. And one of the men in the unit, a recovering alcoholic, was conducting, who was conducting to the initiation rite, sat in the other chair. As I said, all the men sat in silence, no eye contact, looking down. Somber atmosphere. As serious, Jim says, as death. And it fit because the newcomer was indeed in risk of dying from his illness. So the man leading the initiation finally said to the man, What do you love the most? And the man, not knowing what to say, said, um, my wife. And all the men around the room yelled, bullshit. The man being questioned nearly leapt out of his chair. Then everyone looked back down at the floor in somber silence. And the person was asked again, 
What do you love the most? My children, same response. Same question is repeated. My country, same response. Finally, the man said, alcohol. And the moment he said alcohol, everyone stood and gave him a standing ovation. And then he was asked to stand. And then in complete silence, they all lined up. Each man embraced this newcomer, hugging him, accepting him, loving him, because he told the truth about his addiction. What I would say to individuals I am companioning spiritually in counseling or direction, I would say to you, and that is that no matter how badly we've trashed ourselves, either individually or as a culture, in patterns of self-destructive behavior, there's a center of ourselves that remains invincibly whole and undiminished because that part of ourselves belongs entirely to God. In that moment, that man admitting the truth of his addiction and ours as a culture is to violence was stepping into freedom. He willingly entered spiritual hospice to die to one identity so that another might be born. And he turned the space into a maternity ward. So may it be with us. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.